Hello, welcome to the Professor Penn Podcast, and I'm David Penn, and um, part of well-being is uh, enjoying things, and uh, that just brings such a big smile to my face. Uh, you know, I, there's a scene, I'm wearing my heavy sweater here because I'm broadcasting to you from Minneapolis. It's pretty warm today, 30 degrees Fahrenheit, so, you know, if you're in the northern tier, that's pretty acceptable. If you're in Miami, you're going, whoa. That's cold. We just came off of about uh, two weeks of uh, below zero weather every day. And, uh, you know, when it gets to be 30 degrees, it's, you know, almost springtime. And uh, when I was uh, 16 years old, I got into a school on the East Coast. It was a very prominent top 10 liberal arts college. It was called Haverford College. It's still there. It's a Quaker school, and I, I turned 17 on July 27th, and uh, the first week of August, I trucked off to uh, Philadelphia as a 17-year-old to enter this uh, rarefied four-year liberal arts college. I didn't want to go there. Actually, I wanted to go to Curtis or Juilliard. I was a classically trained violin player, and I really wanted to play violin, but growing up in the you know 60s and 70s, uh, Dissent was not tolerated in the family I came from, and my father said, you will be a doctor. You will be an academic. He had my whole career mapped out for me. I graduated high school a year early, right on time. Top of my class a year early, right on time. Got into the fifth best school in the country, right on time. And he wanted me to graduate in three years and go to Harvard Medical School and then get my postdoc and then be teaching in a in a, you know, medical school, uh, you know, environment, a teaching school, you know, by the time I was 25, pressure was on. And, you know, I was, I was a rebellious kid, but I didn't have a way out. And uh, so I went off to Haverford and I took that train to Haverford, that long train from the airport. And I was alone for the first time. And I'm in Minnesota. Minnesota is still one of the most uh, heterogeneous, no, non, it's a very homogeneous state compared to some of the other states. We have a very uh, large population of uh, Northern Europeans here. We have lots of groups that have been brought into the state, uh, by the state, by the federal state. But we, you know, we really, um, really have a very, uh, compared to many of the other parts of the country, a, a relatively uh, white population. And uh, when I came out of Minnesota in 1976, it was a lot more so. We had a very small minority population at that time. And when I landed in Philadelphia, it was like a completely different world. That was hilarious for me. I was scared. I was scared. <clears throat> so I went off to um, up the train, never been on a train before, and I got to Haverford College. And I was, my father did not allow any rock and roll in the house. I didn't listen to rock and roll. We only were allowed to listen to classical music. We, you know, it was a very traditional kind of upbringing, including a lot of rich religious ritual. So I took that train up from the, from the uh, Philadelphia International Airport, and can't even remember what it was called, and uh, got to Haverford and got all checked in. And for whatever reason, now you have to understand, I was a year younger than everybody else entering, and a year means a lot when you're 16, 17, 18 years old, emotionally, physically. So, you know, I was there, and for whatever reason, they always put freshmen with freshmen. Always. Always freshmen with freshmen. But for whatever reason, they ran out of freshmen. So I was assigned to go in to a dorm quad, four people in a dorm area, with two notorious juniors. 
And I walked in to that quad, and the smell of marijuana hit me in the face for the first time. And it was like, whoa, I know what that is. And I walked in, and there, and I can't mention any of these names because these people are still alive, and they're actually quite prominent. But I walked into the room, and there was a Jeffrey blank blank sitting there, and he had a five-pound bale of pot laying on his bed. And there was Rastaman vibration was playing on his radio, on his, on his, on his, what did he even call it? What did we call it? Stereo. He had a stereo in the old time with the stylus, like an album, a record. And there was Rasta, there was Bob Marley. I had no idea what that was. And it blew me away. So I'm going to assume most of the listeners and, and uh, viewers know Bob Marley. But for those that don't, please go check it out. And if you have never seen this clip, this, this level of music is so uplifting. And Bob worked the waterfront from just love songs to the most timeless songs of protest. And I just wanted to start out with it because it's cool. That's it. I mean, I'm, I guess you could say I'm trying to make myself cool by putting up Bob Marley. But I feel cool when I watch Bob Marley. And I have since 1976 or 1977. And I've been listening to, and people, when I put Bob Marley on, and I'm like, I have people over my age or from my generation, I put Bob Marley, they all know Bob Marley. I mean, this is what's hilarious about it. Bob Marley had a very a giant audience. And I, I was talking about this in the last uh, podcast. He was almost like the, uh, he was the entertainer-in-chief, chief poet, a center of the resistance movement. He was actually uh, very important to the black nationalist movement all around the world, here in the United States, South Africa. Uh, he was from Jamaica. I mean, Jamaica had tremendous political unrest. He was actually shot in a political assassination attempt. So this guy put his, his ass on the line for human freedom, human dignity, uh, human well-being. Uh, he, he understood that his music uplifted the downtrodden. The whole concept of ska and then reggae was to dance and to move, to leave your troubles behind, to be in the moment, to form a community of people that came together in the vibration. That's Rastaman vibration, the vibration, the sharing, and there's a well-being to that. And you can juxtapose that with, you know, some of the music we, we listen to today is, is really uh, quite different. And I, I uh, know that every generation has a different vibe. But this vibe is timeless, and I, I'm really glad to, to share it with you. Now, at this exact same time, we had this beautiful mu music that was aimed at well-being. But in the streets, in the streets, there was riots and unrest. And when a society has riots, when there's wars and rumors of a war, you know, Bob Marley sang, political violence will fill your cities. Uh, when there's political violence, that is a symptom of human unwellness. And I just like to see, can we play that clip of the, of the riots that were going on at the exact same time that this beautiful studio piece was filmed? Look at this. This is a, a catalog on CNN. There's no, 
there is no uh, audio clip with this. It's just the uh, uh, the crawl. This is a, a a history of just tremendous riots that broke out uh, in the '60s, and they really have extended right up until today. This constant roiling of the inner cities. These were very organic riots, and when I say organic, this was the the rising up of the community, of our community. And see, what tends to happen is people say it's another community. No, this is the American community. This is the symptom of the unwellness in our society. This is a a lack of good economic policy. This is racism, uh, segregation. This is a, a lack of civil rights and human rights. And you can see these films. We actually had the U.S. military. The military itself was called out and put into these communities. And at that time, the military was working for a very much more right-wing government. These riots were really progressively over time as the Marxists kind of hijacked these these uh, protest movements, they became more and more leftist. And they were a reaction to the status quo. <clears throat> and these are just phenomenal. I mean, look there, look at this. This is, you know, armed people, shotguns in the streets. Now, these are civil police, but we actually had military. And, <clears throat> you know, what's so interesting about this is there was broad, very broad uh, social acceptance of the National Guard and the military being called out into the streets to suppress our fellow American citizens. This is, this is kind of um, short-sighted because as time has gone on, uh, the group that was in charge of our government <clears throat> became progressively Darwinist. One could say that in the 60s, the people that were running the government were more conservative, probably more faithful as a group, but as the universities like, that I went to, like Haverford, became completely populated by leftist professors, I was there in, I think, 77. Every teacher was a Marxist. That's all we studied was Marxist and decolonization and the effect of colonization on both the colonizer and the colonized. You know, psychology was focused on it, anthropology, history, philosophy. Um, I can't say that they were um, making math into an issue because I, I took you know math and science because I was on that uh, math and science track. That was really insulated, uh, but everything at the school was about protest. Uh, there was a, a huge uh, gay rights movement there. Uh, the sister school was Bryn Mawr. That was one of the centers of the women's rights movements. People were highly, highly activated. And it was drugs was everywhere. It was, you know, I said, I walked in a room, five pounds a pot, five pounds a pot. That's the only time I've seen it before, since or after, or before, during, and after. That's, this is unbelievable. Anyhow, um, the, the school was very, very interested in, pro, in propagating and developing Marxist-orientated students. And that was a long time ago. So those students went to graduate school, they got teaching degrees, their students got teaching degrees, and here we are, and it's, you know, all these years later, and I think, as I said in a previous podcast, 
I think something like 95% of the professoriate now identifies as leftist or Marxist. <clears throat> so who's teaching the children and what they're teaching them really determines the future of the country. And there's a reason why there's Marxism. Uh, Marxism is a reaction to a very unequitable sharing of resources and suppression of the people. Uh, and, you know, we'll be talking, I think, in the, in the time to come a lot about what's valuable about all these movements because, I, you know, none of these movements are completely bad or good. They all have the yin-yang. And, and this is something I really want to focus on is that we get so polarized, we lose awareness of how things change. There is always in every human event, every physical event, every event that we can be aware of, either scientifically or with our own five senses, a yin and a yang, a fire and an ice. There is a tension between complementary opposites or antagonists. And this is how change comes about. So uh, that yin-yang symbol that is so prevalent now that people see, uh, you know, maybe you could pull up a yin-yang symbol. This is the little black dot and the white and the uh, white dot and the black. There it is. I mean, this is this is that that um, depiction of um, of uh, there it is. That's that depiction of movement. You notice it's not a linear line. It's a it's a moving. It's a it it it, it symbolizes change in the interaction. That in the black there's some white, and in the white there's some black, and they're moving around. And one thing turns into its other. So where are we today? <clears throat> when I was uh, off at Haverford. The universities and the colleges were still a bastion of conservatism. That was changing very quickly. And the scholarship and the scholars that were produced were becoming leftist very quickly. Uh, previous to that, it had been ultra-conservative. Oh, that's great. So we know what we, have, uh, what we have is all of these students then grow up and become part of the uh, infrastructure of the of the country. They go to law school. They become judges. They become legislators, and they wear suits and they wear ties and they wear the costumes of the conservative past of our country. But actually, they are Marxists, Darwinists. Nobody taught any religious classes at my university that was aimed at increasing faith or one's understanding of well-being or one's understanding of God or the spiritual world. We learned religion from an anthropological perspective and a historical perspective such that we were able to deconstruct religious ritual and religious um, uh, stories and anthropomorphize them and remove the idea of faith in God, remove the relationship of man and nature, and completely break it down into a materialist kind of... Uh, non-spiritual redaction and understanding of religious tradition, which was really interesting at, at Haverford because it was a Quaker school. I think it might have been started by William Penn. I can't remember, but it was a Quaker school, and I was there just after the Vietnam War, and Haverford was at the forefront of the um, anti-war movement because the Quakers are nonviolent. So, you know, there was a great anti-war tradition there, 
ultra liberal. I mean, it was so liberal, you know, but it was emblematic and representative of of the entire uh, time uh, that I went to school. It didn't matter if you went to Harvard or Princeton or even the University of Minnesota. All these institutions were rapidly transitioning. Now, my father was an academic at the University of Minnesota, and uh, I actually grew up in an academic background where I was privy to the plans that were made amongst the leftists. My father was a leader of the anti-war movement, and he also was involved in the formation of the Black Studies Department at the University of Minnesota. So he was very notorious, very radical in how he was perceived. And uh, I remember sitting, you know, in the living room, and these top academics from the University of Minnesota got together. I was maybe seven, eight, nine, but I've, I've been blessed with a good memory. And they had a plan. They had a plan to take the University of Minnesota from its conservative moorings and radicalize it and take over the curriculum, take over the positions of, you know, academic leadership and make the school uh, a leftist institution. And they actually were able to do that. And um, uh, my father, you, you may be looking for my dad. My father was uh, the two-time, I think, was the Morris professor. Or he, was the, he was the distinguished teacher of the university several times. He, he was, he's very well-known in the community. And um, so this, uh, this turning of the educational institutions, of course, people were getting their degrees to go teach grade school, high school. Well, it's no wonder that here today, Darwinism, Malthusianism, something we need to talk about, Thomas Malthus. Thomas Malthus said that there wasn't enough resources and there was going to be a fight over limited resources. So you put that together with Darwinism, Malthusianism, the view that without moral restraint, the population will increase at a greater rate than its means of subsistence. Without moral restraint. Now that's a nice way of saying that on Wikipedia. What they're saying is, without culling the herd, without reducing the population, without um, without controlling uh, the number of humans, the uh, lack of resources will lead to competition and war within the context of Darwinism. Darwinism being survival of the fittest. And if you take a look at, you know, the, the, uh, the halls of our governance, our, our lawyer class, our doctor class, all of these professionals have gone through this, this leftist education. They were not taught to believe in God. They were not taught to believe in humanity. They were taught to believe that without this, what here is called moral restraint, in other words, population control. Population control means humans don't make it. They get killed by the state as the state tries to match resources to the population. And of course, the extension of that is the environmental movement. And, you know, the the idea, I think if you look around, you'll find out that there is very ample evidence in our federal record going back to the time of Henry Kissinger, who was the Secretary of State under uh, President Nixon. There's been a long tradition of looking towards depopulation as a way of managing resources. And of course, I think that's horrifying because it removes God and the relationship of God and man from the whole equation. It makes man into God. And that is about the biggest trap man can get into. So, 
from a traditional perspective, from a how I was raised, God was the master of life and death. You know, obviously, that's not how modern American society is proceeding. Uh, in the Native American traditions, great spirit. Everything was about this spiritual realm. And traditional people lived in that spiritual realm. For example, I think life expectancy now is in the 76, 77 year range for men and maybe 80 for women. It's really come down a lot. Um, let's see. Um, what do we got for life? Why is life expectancy falling? It's falling because we're being depopulated, subject for another podcast. But, you know, it's in the, in the late 70s. If you, you know, men die two or three or four years earlier than uh, women do. Um, but going back 100 years ago or 200 or 300 years ago, people would only expect to live to be between 30 and 40 years old. And parents and brothers and sisters, and they died at home. We watched them die. They were not, we did not house our elderly and our ill in warehouses, which is what we're doing now. The family was intact, and we we kept our parents with us, and we kept our children with us, and family was a big deal. And, of course, we died at home, and we died young. So people, when, when people die at seven, eight, nine years old, when people have nine or ten kids because six of them die of infectious disease, um, when that death is in your face constantly, uh, people spiritualize their lives. They, they look to another world because death is so much more in everyone's everyday experience. And what science did, and I, you know, we were talking about that in the first podcast, the growth of the scientific method and the benefits of science, the perceived benefits of science, the uh, really probably mostly sanitary issues like sewers, better food production, uh, and then you get into the, you know, the managing of infectious disease. It really extended people's life expectancies, and science worked its way in as the new God, as the new center of people's spiritual life. So, you know, church attendance is at an all-time low, and going to the doctor is an all-time high. And, you know, this, was the, this is still uh, one of the highest um, roles or most coveted roles in our society. That's of medical doctor. Uh, I'm going to say that um, from a well-being perspective, uh, doctors don't have very much to do with well-being. They have a lot to do with disease management. And a very good uh, friend of mine who was a doctor said to me, the goal of life is to compress your morbidity before your mortality. In other words, as a doctor, as an honest doctor, he knew people were going to die and he wasn't going to bullshit them about it. What the goal of his practice was, which was a well-being practice, was to take the period of time when you're unwell, physically unwell, and compress it. Not have 20 or 30 years of, I had my first heart attack when I was 45, and I've been on all kinds, I'm taking 30 pills a day for 30 years, and my lifestyle is trunk. And this happens to so many people. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I remember, you know, looking at my, my, my parents and my grandparents, I mean, people were taking 20 pills a day. I don't take I don't take any pharmacological agents. Uh, doesn't mean that I couldn't if I went to the doctor. 
I'm sure they would prescribe all kinds of stuff for me. I'm just not going to take it. I feel well. I am my own diagnostician. Now, I don't want to get suppressed for saying this. I think people need to be at their own level with this. If you go into the doctor and you're getting good information there, that's great. That's part of your well-being strategy. Well-being requires a strategy. If, if a person feels well by going to the doctor regularly and having tests, and that's how they start to work into a routine of self-monitoring, of self-awareness, I'm all for it. I totally support it. But if your self-monitoring and self-awareness is looking at a report from the doctor, you're missing something that other people have. And here's what other people have. They get up in the morning and they see a screen in their mind. And that screen says, heart rate's good. All my functions are working fine. My mind is clear. My body's working. Where do I hurt? What's my pain? What do I need to eat today? What's going on? You know, it, and it's this feedback loop that a person's into constantly. And that's what it is to live in the natural way. Because that yin and yang symbol is saying things are changing every single day. That's on an individual basis. But then on a social basis, you know, a riot, those riots, it's like a cancer in the society. A cancer is a riot of the cells, out of control, excuse me, out of control reproduction, cell reproduction. A riot is out of control members of the society burning things down, and left unchecked, they'd burn the whole thing down. So we bring in the antibodies, which is the military, and the antibodies repress the riot. It's the same metaphor that's going on in our bodies with disease. Interesting thing happened along the way. As we made these um, schools leftist, that conservative group, that sent the military in in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s has been replaced by the leftists. The leftists now control the judiciary. They control the state. They control many of the legislatures. Uh, here in Minnesota, we have one-party rule. The Republican Party is completely disempowered. Uh, we, the, we have a Democrat governor, Democrat legislature, you know, uh, House and Senate. And there's nothing to oppose uh, what the leftists want to do. And I think the uh, conservatives are a little bit shocked because they're not holding back. Uh, just some of the legislation that's either passed or going to pass. Comprehensive abortion, as I said previously, not here to litigate the abortion issue. I'm just saying abortion is legal in Minnesota to the ninth month. So a viable baby can be aborted at birth, and killed. Traditionally, that's called infanticide. Uh, election laws being expanded, permanent mail-in ballots for people uh, that want them, uh, felons are going to be allowed to vote, uh, voting registration will be tied, tried to, tied to your uh, driver's license. Okay, that's great. But then another bill says illegal aliens or uh, all these people that are coming across our border are going to get driver's licenses legally. Interestingly, every police association in the state backs that. We're going to come back to that idea. So you have the driver's license is the voter registration. Illegal aliens can get voter 
I can get driver's license, so they're registered to vote. And the legislature is now voting to give illegals all the benefits of the state of Minnesota, health care, all. So, get, you know, everybody gets a driver's license, they can vote. Illegals get driver's license. And we're going to give illegals a payoff or, a, or spoils of war for voting Democrat. What they're putting together in Minnesota is the kind of policy that really, uh, what they're attempting to do is to never lose power here in Minnesota. And that's politics. Politics is about winning. And, you know, the game is being changed. And what's going to have to happen is we're going to have to think as a society, do we like the outcomes that we're getting from this experiment? Because if you think about if you've ever been around a little baby, they put everything in their mouth. Babies put everything in their mouth. They're experimenting. Sometimes they put things in their mouth that kills them. That's why parents watch what they put in their mouth. Our whole society is a giant experiment of human consciousness. And we're coming out of a 2,000-year history that was um, more focused in the Judeo-Christian background in the West and the natural way in the East. And when Mao took power in China, took power, took power as a communist in China in 1949, all the Shaolin priests, all the traditional religions of China were immediately suppressed. There is no religious freedom in China. So the natural way or that traditional knowledge wiped away. However, it's in the heart of the Chinese people. It's very difficult to erase thousands of years of cultural knowledge. But they're working on it. And in our country, the people that are in control now of government are Darwinists, they're Malthusians, they're leftists, they don't believe in God, and they're trying to extinguish that cultural tradition from our society. And we're going to just have to figure this out on a worldwide basis. But my theory, in fact, I know it to be the case, if someone's Jewish and that's what they know, they're missing the New Testament. If someone's Christian and they don't know the Old Testament, they're missing the entire tradition of what we call Judeo-Christianity. The whole waterfront works together. Christ said, I didn't come to overthrow the law. I came to fulfill it. So uh, Jesus was a Jew. All of the apostles were Jewish. That's the Jewish tradition, became Christianity. It's one tradition. But if you're missing the natural way, and I think Roger Kipling said, East meets West, neither the twain shall meet. The idea being that there's a huge gap between the way uh, the Eastern world thinks of life and the way the Western world thinks of life. And if you look at things very dispassionately, the Industrial Revolution was initiated in the West. It was the scientific method, and it was used to colonize and suppress the East. What's happened now is China has figured out how to operationalize that scientific method in its own people. And it's got a new hybridized model and is growing very quickly and is is really we're in conflict east and west. But underneath that conflict, that yin and yang, is another thing, you know, that that symbol. There's the conflict, and underneath there's the cooperation. They're playing a dangerous game. 
because we, the people, might figure this out. That's why they're suppressing the truth. Because in conflicting with each other, if you fight with someone else, when you're rolling around on the ground with someone, you really get to know who they are. And right now we're rolling around on the ground with Asia. The West and the East are in deep conflict. That means a lot of information is being shared. That is a great opportunity. In fact, in China, in, in Mandarin, the word for threat, the, 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 the word, the, the, pict, the pictogram means threat and opportunity. So when we're threatened, when there's great change, the threat of change, there's great opportunity. And that's the moment we're at today. So I want to talk a little bit about well-being related to our Constitution. There it is. Chinese symbol for threat is the same as opportunity. Uh, no. Yeah, you know, thank you, Quart. Yes, it is. Okay. Let's, let's not trust everything we read online. Let's talk to Chinese people directly. Okay? So there's a lot of disinformation. There's a lot of information. One of the themes and one, one of the themes of my life is I want to be able to feel what's true and I want to talk to the people. I don't want to read it in a book unless the book is a source material. I don't want to read about Marx that somebody else wrote a book about it. I want to read Karl Marx. I don't want to read about the Bible. I want to go read the Bible. I don't want to read about China. I've been there over a hundred times. So, you know, people want to talk to me about uh, China. I hope millions of Chinese people find this. I understand that, you know, China better than most Americans because I've been studying China and Chinese philosophy pretty much full time since I'm about 19 years old. And uh, we need to bring these communities together. We need a worldwide community of well-being, but it's based on close to the close to the neighborhood. We need to stay close to our neighborhoods. When structures get too big, power gets too far away from the people. But we want well-being for the Chinese. I don't want to beat the Chinese. I want the Chinese to do whatever they want to do. If they leave me alone, I'm good with it. I'm not looking for war with the Chinese. I want them to do their thing. Right now, I want to be concerned about what's going on right here in Minneapolis-St. Paul. Of course, I'm talking to a wider audience, but my political activity has a has a has a internet component, has a podcast component. But I'm very involved right here in my backyard. I'm very involved. I'm, a, I'm what people would call political activist, and I'm active with one goal: to increase human well-being. So I. I like to go back to the source materials, and I'm going to read something. This is the preamble to the U.S. Constitution. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. We the people. Okay, first idea. 
We the people means we the people. It doesn't mean those people or they. We, every single one of us, are we the people. We have established this Constitution. We need to think about this Constitution as if we were there when it was written. We have to believe that we were in the room, that we were there at that time. We have to feel the connection between our experience today and the moment that that pen went on that paper and crafted that document. Because that's the founding um, artifact that binds us together as a country. Oh, so many people are saying it's no good. We have this big yin-yang battle in our legal world with uh, originalists and progressives. The progressives say it's just a document written by men. It can change with time. We can amend it. It doesn't have any psychic or spiritual value. It's just a compact between men, and as times change, we'll change the document. That's the progressive idea. The originalist idea is there's something divine about this document. It's the rules of the game. The rules are based on natural law, and that natural law is a gift to us from the Great Spirit, the Creator, Yahweh, Jesus Christ, however one wants to frame a human construct around an idea that is so grand and so great I can't understand it. Now, the people that have come in contact with that intelligent great spirit or the creator know it to be a reality for them. There's a lot of people that never found it, don't know how to get to it, therefore they don't believe it exists. In fact, they'll tell me, and many people have, that I'm mentally ill. Maybe so. Call me crazy. Rice White's got a great podcast called Call Me Crazy. Look it up. Go there. Just like the Professor Penn podcast. Please, if you like what you're hearing, go to, go to the subscribe button. Click subscribe. Click the like button. Let's get a community together of millions of people. Because this is an action podcast. Go to Royce's podcast, Call Me Crazy. It's a completely different spin on things. But he's just right out there. He's saying, hey, they call me crazy because I believe in God. Okay, that's a great way to put down and marginalize millions of people who are people of faith. Who would do that? The faithless. And that's that tornado I've been talking about. That's that yin and yang, that, that uh, complementary antagonism. Well, in our political process, our political process has harnessed that, and we need to learn how to use that process to bring about a well-being community. That's what we're doing here. We the people, we were there. It's our history. It's our cultural record. It's in our heart. It's in our soul. It's in our schools. It's in our architecture. It's in our communities. It's our border. We the people, in order to form a more perfect union, what we're saying here is, we're working together through this yin-yang of political discourse. 
to form a more perfect community, a union of people. And that, again, is an issue of yin and yang. There's a great uh, philosopher named Maimonides, and I think he said, um, if I am not for myself, who will be? But if I am only for myself, what am I? He's talking about that yin-yang of, if I'm only for myself, what am I? But if, I'm, you know, there's a community personal thing. That's really what the battle is. What are individual rights? What are the rights of the community? This Constitution needs to be studied. It needs to be studied by every single American citizen. And why do I say this? We are not an ethno-nationalist state. When I say ethno-nationalist, there are countries in this world like China where virtually the entire population and certainly the entire governance, you must be a Han Chinese. There's no Barack Obamas in China, okay? This is a testament to our country's great traditions. In China, every single person in the governmental hierarchy is Han Chinese. The whole country is Han Chinese. Their religion is being Chinese. It's a religion for them. Russia is a similar example. Uh, Israel is a similar example. Uh, the, 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 the sine qua non of this is China. You can talk to 100 Chinese people and ask them a question, and you're going to get 100 answers that are exactly the same. That's homogeneity. I got a lot of great stories about that that I look forward to sharing with you in the future. Uh, and I want to say, sharing stories, we need to listen to each other's stories because it heals us. Repression is unhealth and unwellness. Having the courage to speak, that's why we have freedom of speech. That's why this Constitution enshrines freedom of speech. But we're, we're working to form a more perfect community. They call it a union, but it's about a community. And when it's an ethno-nationalist community, what binds the community is genetics, which makes them very prone to be Darwinist because their community is bound together because of their ethnicity. Our American community is bound together by a set of spiritual ideals, a set of spiritual ideas and ideals. And when our universities and our, and our high schools and even our grade schools are taken over by a 95% Darwinian worldview, these soaring ideas are minimized, marginalized. Hey, call me crazy. It's actually crazy to believe this document. And that's what we're living through today. A group of people, of which I will say I am one, that believe in the divine inspiration of the people that form this document. This constitutional document was a creation of men who believed in God, mostly. Mostly, I'm not saying they were, and they believed in God differently. But they all lived in nature. Hey, there was no one in 1776 that had headphones on and an iPhone watching a podcast. These people went down to the local bar by horseback, got together, 
drank, talked about politics because it was their only entertainment. There was no movies, no television, no internet, no sporting events. Their entertainment was coming together as a community and talking about life. And they practiced high-end oratory and high-end composition. What do we have now? People can't read, people can't write. How are we going to communicate with each other if we can't have a common language? Oh, no, we don't want a common language. Oh, the left has said, we have to have many languages. Whatever language you came here with, keep it. Because it's your diversity. Nothing wrong with diversity. I have my own unique cultural traditions, and I maintain them. But I'm an American citizen. And I love being an American citizen, and I want to share my American citizenship with all other American citizens, and I want to enjoy politics, and I want to seek the kind of oratory and composition that leads us to a more perfect union. This is not about winning and losing. This is about change. We want to minimize losing and maximize community. We want to maximize well-being and minimize the ill health that comes with conflict. Conflict is not necessarily good for you. Establish justice. Well, the oldest tradition in the world, that's the Judeo-Christian tradition and the Chinese tradition, believe that the world rests on three things. Truth, justice, peace. That's why they had that great saying that's still used today, no justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. Absolutely true. But if there's no truth, there can be no justice. And we're living in a world of propaganda, spin, uh, blatant disinformation. And one group calls the other group a liar. And, you know, there's going to be people that come on and say, uh, Professor Penn is not a professor. That's true. I'm not teaching in the university. How could I? I'm not a leftist. I'm not a Darwinian. I'm not a Malthusian. There's no place for me in those universities. There's a place for me here. Oh, let's suppress the internet. Let's not let voices be heard. I'm not saying I'm correct or that I have the truth. I have my version of the truth. It may motivate some of the listeners, to go do their own investigation. I'm not saying believe what I say. I'm saying there's a way for you to figure out what you believe, which the society has denied to you. We are living in a world where we are taught not to seek truth on our own, but to accept the truth or the narrative that's given to us by the media and Hollywood and the state. And we get lied to. Whole cloth. That's why in this previous pro podcast, I played that horrible Zapruder film where President Kennedy's head gets blown off by a frontal shot, and they told us it came from behind. I mean, don't believe your lion eyes. I mean, it's just impossible for me to believe that a man's head jerks backward when he's shot from behind. He's going to go forward because of the energy of the bullet entering his and how did the front of his head blow off when he was shot from behind? The whole thing's a bullshit story. And we know it's a bullshit story because our Congress said 20 years later when they investigated, 
hey, the Warren Commission was a bullshit story. It was a cover-up. We have cover-up after cover-up after cover-up. I think Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, we know they lie. They know we know they lie. We know they know we know they lie, but still they lie. Yeah, there it is. Let's pull that. This is, that's a great one. Let's see if we can get that up. There, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, at the front of the freedom movement of the Soviet, they know they are lying. They know they are lying. And we, and can you read that? I can't see it. It's behind. Can you read that? What is that? Can you pull that up a little bit higher? That's a good one to know. That we know they are lying. They know they are lying. They know we know they are lying. We know they know we know they are lying, but they are still lying. I mean, this is written about the Soviet Union by Solzhenitsyn, and it's, a, it's totally appropriate for what we're going through right now. So what ends up happening is, is well, everybody says everybody else is lying. There's no truth. And what happens to people is they give up, they go home, smoke a joint, turn on their device, and they withdraw from it. Because without truth, there can be no justice. That's why we're going through this. Excuse me, I'm getting excited. Piss me off. This really pisses me off because I'm realizing this for the first time because I'm finding truth on the fly with you. The reason all this lying is going on is because if there's no truth, there's no justice. And if there's no justice, there's no peace. And if they can keep us at war with each other, if they can keep us divided, they will rule us. Go take a look at the map of the Middle East. That was driven, that, those lines, a natural map, a natural set of borders follows rivers. It follows mountains. If you look at the colonial map, take a look at those borders around Iraq where we have all this fighting, in Syria where we have all this fighting. Those straight lines, that's a bullshit story. Those lines were drawn by the British Empire. There is a lot of oil underneath Iraq and Saudi Arabia. Look at those lines in Egypt. Straight lines? Somebody drew that with a, a compass. That's not the way those countries are naturally formatted. Those lines were drawn right through ethnic groups, right through communities, to pit one group of people against the other, to create hatred and division amongst tribal people such that they would war with each other then what the British Empire would do is they'd fund both sides of the conflict. Or what the inheritor of the British Empire would do, the United States government, they'd fund both sides of the conflict. For example, Turkey, it's a NATO member. Turkey's a member of NATO. There's a group there called the Kurds in that area. The U.S. military, when they invaded Iraq in 2003, allied themselves with the Kurds. The Kurds are at war with the Turks. We're arming the Turks with U.S. weaponry, and we're arming the Kurds with U.S. weaponry. We're on both sides of the equation. Nothing's going to happen over there. This place is in complete violence and war. There was a huge tragedy in that region this week. There was a massive earthquake. Tens of thousands of people have died. I don't know why that earthquake happened. And I'm not looking to make meaning out of it. But maybe the silver lining in, the in, the, in this horrible event will be that these people who are so opposed to each other will have to come together 
to rebuild their communities. That region where that earthquake occurred, I've been there many times. It is absolutely on fire. People turned against each other in conflict, and our government, the U.S. government, provides arms to everybody over there. Great business, but more importantly, when everybody's killing everybody else, the extraction of the oil and the manipulation of the, of the, of the area just goes on unabated because we, the people, can't come together. This is the British model. I mean, I look at, look at that border between Libya and Chad. It's a straight line. Come on. And there's all kinds of ethnic conflict over there and tribal conflict. It's it's just horrifying when I look at this map. But let's let's that's over there. I mean, I'm not interested in being a globalist. I want to look at what's going on in my own community. Look at the division in our own community, the riots, the wars, white and black, man and woman, uh, gay and straight, uh, young and old. Leftist and rightist, we are so divided, and we think that's organic. No, it's not organic. We're manipulated. We are manipulated in this country solely to keep we, the people, from coming together as a community and rejecting Darwinism. In fact, they tell us we have to be stronger to defeat our enemy. I mean, we are so caught up in a bullshit story over here that we're warring with each other, tearing each other apart. There's parts of this that are so despicable to me growing up in an academic family, knowing that it is the professors that teach my children and, and radicalize them and create divisions and hatreds that really don't need to, to, to exist. Because if you're faithless, you still want to have well-being for your children. I mean, well-being is the kind of idea that we can all... Who's going to get on the other side of well-being? If you're out there, contact me. If you're for killing people or making people unwell, and there's a lot of you out there, and we're going to start calling you out by name, but if you're out there and you believe that people should be sick and die, hey, you're not in the well-being camp. But we're going to find out that that's a very teeny tiny group of mass murdering psychopaths, that the vast majority of people just want to be well. They want to wake up in the morning and have breakfast, feel good. Now, if your breakfast is a big stack of pancakes with maple syrup and butter, and you have 2,000, 2,500 calories for breakfast, and you have a bunch of orange juice, which is a bunch of sugar, and it came out of a trop, oh, don't want to mention any brand names, sorry. Don't want to get any trouble. But if you, if you eat the wrong things and spike your blood sugar up, you get an insulin reaction. It leads to the production of fat in your body. You know, we just have to just get very simple about how easy it is to be well. It's how you breathe. It's what you eat. It's how you walk. And it's how you're connected to nature. It's a very simple equation. Very complex if you're not well. And I've been through times in my life when I've been very unwell. So if you're struggling with things, I have struggled with things. I understand how difficult it can be. And it's been very difficult for me. I've been on door, the door, uh, death's door, hard to say, a long time ago. I've been there many times, many different ways. 
My life's been threatened by both disease and physically many times. And I'm well. I'm completely well. I mean, I feel great. And I have a lot to accomplish and a lot to contribute. And I'm looking forward to having a community with you. So uh, I just want to finish this, and then I want to move on to my summary statement of the day. It's amazing how quick an hour and a half goes by. Every time I do this, just so you know, I think to myself, how am I going to talk for an hour and a half? I mean, it's such a, but there's so much to share with each other. There's so much information. You know, there's, there's, there's facts, there's knowledge, and there's wisdom. Some people know a lot of facts. They can't put it together in the knowledge. That's what our universities do. They teach facts, and the best of the university people have knowledge. It doesn't mean they're wise. Wisdom is what we're seeking for our well-being. Facts, knowledge, that'll make a nuclear bomb and kill your ass. If you're wise, you wouldn't have any nuclear bombs. It would be unnecessary. So obviously the people that are running the show have a lot of scientific technique, a lot of knowledge, but on the wisdom side, they are grossly deficient. That's why our Constitution says we the people, we have to be the wisdom. These people that are running the show, they're the ones that we've elected. We've empowered them. Very easy to make it better. We need to get involved in the political in order to form a more perfect community where there's peace, truth, justice, peace. We have to be able to find truth and feel it and not repress it. This Internet needs to be completely free. And it doesn't matter if people speak untruth. If they speak untruth, I can feel it. I'd rather subject myself to their untruths than stifle their voices such that my voice would be stifled too, which is something I want to bring out. Those military people that were in the streets in the 60s and 70s and 80s that were working for the status quo, I want to bring this around a punchline, a tagline. The Darwinists are now in control of the government. So when the military comes out into the streets now, it's the faithful that are going to be the victims of this, the new status quo, the new left, that now runs our government and runs our universities, and runs our high schools, and runs our grade schools. So that military-industrial complex and its lowest rung, our local police forces, they're Darwinists. So if you're out there thinking the police is on your side because you go to church, they're going to come close your church. And go look online. Plenty of evidence of this happening in both Canada and Australia. Maybe we'll come back to that on the next show. Establish justice, which in the word established justice, justice means in seek and only allow truth. This is called bringing sacred honor into our governance. Ensure domestic tranquility. There it is. Truth, justice, peace. Tranquility is another word for peace. Provide for the common defense. We will. It didn't say provide for the common offense like Let's be over in the Ukraine arming the Ukrainians. Let's be in a war. Let's make a lot of money and kill a lot of people over in someone else's backyard. doesn't say that. 
That's not a, it doesn't say provide for the common, the common offense. It says provide for the common defense. Promote the general welfare, which is well-being. And secure the blessings. Blessing infers a creator. The blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our children, our posterity. There are no more soaring words. There is no more soaring rhetoric to unite a people in a common purpose in the history of politics in the modern in the in the modern world in the in the post renaissance world and please get a copy of the constitution they're very low they don't cost anything in fact i'm thinking when i get rolling here i'm going to buy 100,000 constitutions and when you when you join i'm going to mail you one that's a great idea don't let me forget that one so this constitution is what binds us together the ideas well let me just take a second and talk about words and how sophisticated our professors are at hijacking our words and turning them against the very idea of our Constitution. Promote the general welfare. Welfare has two meanings. The health, happiness, and fortunes of a person or a group. And that's what it meant. There was no other meaning. That's what welfare was, the health, the happiness and fortunes of a person or a group, well-being. But somewhere along the way, somebody said, that's a damn good word from our Constitution. We need to hijack that word, use its great history, its great meaning, and we'll turn it into a new idea that the state can use to control people. A statutory procedure or social effort designed to promote the basic physical and material well-being of people in need. So they took this soaring idea of welfare, which is a spiritual idea about well-being, and they yanked it down to a Marxist concept of materiality and a statutory procedure. This is insidiously smart. That is how we end up where we are where beautiful ideas of freedom and beautiful ideas of the spiritual world are invalidated, pulled into the material world, reframed in a Marxist construct, and then operationalized in a statutory procedure administered by state governance. And just in case one word isn't enough, I got another one for you. Equity. Equity. Here's a great one. A lot of talk about equity these days. Well, equity really means value. The equity in your house means what's the net worth of your house? The equity in your business is what is the value of your business? So they hijacked it. They just said, wow, that's a great word. We're going to hijack it, and we're going to say it's the quality of being fair and impartial. That's a, it's a new construct. What the Marxists want to do is say, we don't want people to have equity, because if they have equity, they have freedom. Equity is a measure or a barometer of creativity and of human freedom. We don't want that. We're going to yank it down and say everybody's the same. This is the insidiousness of the, of the academics. 
and their ability to pervert our language such that we don't even know what we mean. And that's why we're having a problem with truth, because they're taking the critical, fundamental words in histories, in traditions of our country, and weaponizing them against the people and the history of the people so that we, the people, don't know where we came from. And if we don't know where we came from, we don't know where we are. Therefore, we have no idea where we're headed. And where we're headed is a digital prison with no freedom. And that is going to be a big subject of things we're going to be talking about. But here's what they're going to do. They have a, they have a plan. They have a plan. Let's go to, and let's look at where that plan is. Let's just play this Grammy piece that everybody's talking about. Everybody's seen it, but it's just a good place to make a transition. That's enough. Everybody gets the idea. So we're talking about freedom, and here we've got sex slaves in cages with handlers with bullwhips, with the lead singer with devil horns on, in an all-red background, and people are going to say, well, it's art. Well, it's art. Yes, it is, just like Bob Marley is art. We started out with Bob Marley singing beautifully, sweetly, beautiful song, stir it up. Well, here's what here's our gathering, our community gathering for our Grammys, and the imagery is hellish. One might say satanic. Now, they could have chosen any imagery they wanted to. They were in charge of it when I say they. There's a name which we could look up of the person who produced this Grammys. I'm not saying you'll be able to find them, but somebody came up with this idea. Just like, um, oh, there he is, Jack Antonoff. No, no, he's the producer of the year. He didn't produce the Grammys. Who produced the Grammys? Anyhow, there's a person or a group of people who produced this show. And those people chose to have that as the imagery that my, chi my children watched and your children watched or you know, young people watch and old people, we all watch this. And my gosh, they could have stand up there and someone could have just, in a, with the American flag flying behind. He's the producer right there. Okay, great. Well, it doesn't really even matter. We'll get it next time. Because the point is, a human person with their human agency chose this, chose this, up, oh, executive producer for the 60 seconds. Anyhow, my point is this. They could have had an American flag. Is that the producer right there? They could have chosen to have a backdrop of the American flag, and someone could have come out and read the preamble to the Constitution. It was just as viable, but that's not their goal. Their goal is to give me an image of all red, hellish, women in chains, women behind bars as sexual slaves, with the devil presiding over the scene. Okay, that's where we are. That's where we are. And we could, I could talk 
for a day about where we were and how we got here and what they're trying to do. But I'm going to tell you what uh, the criticism is going to be about this well-being thing. Everybody dies. Everybody dies. We have to find a way through science to lessen disease and suffering and death. We have to put down death. That's what's wrong. Professor Penn, you're full of shit. People die. People suffer. And yes, they do. And I have to say, I've suffered more than many people. But I want to play a clip of a man who's dying. Because the idea of well-being has got nothing to do with life and death. It's about sacred honor and connection to nature. So if you could play this clip of Dr. Zev Zelensky, did you, did you, I sent it to you, there it is. Let's just watch, this man's on his deathbed. Dr. Zelenko and, yeah, hi, this is Dr. Zelenko and I'm making this video from my hospital bed. I uh, just want to give a quick update. Uh, many, many people have expressed their love and prayers and uh, I'm very grateful, thank you. Uh, unfortunately, I uh, had a MRI and a transesophageal echocardiogram called a TE, and it found a tumor in my right ventricle. That's the uh, lower right chamber of the heart. And on top of that tumor is a blood clot. Um, that's not pretty good news. It's not good news. And um, the treatment would be to go on blood thinners, which I'm on, to try to dissolve the clot. And then we have to figure out what to do with that tumor. Um, to be frank, if that clot breaks off, that's a ticket to the next world. Uh, also, there are more tumors around my uh, lower left lobe and my lung. So I'm in a precarious situation. However, as King David writes, even though I walk in the shadow of death, I, I shall fear no evil, for God is with me. And I do really feel that way, and those words resonate in my soul more now than ever in my life. And there is a Talmudic teaching that even if the sword is on, the, on your neck, a person should never give up hope. And so I'm in a very good state of mind. And as I frequently said, they're going to have to carry my body off the battlefield because my resolve to help humanity, the, the vulnerable, the innocent, decent people overcome this uh, terrible darkness and plague that is upon us has never been stronger. And if I have to leave the world, uh, I accept God's will, but I encourage and plead with everyone else to up your game and, and stand up and resist. Uh, resist first within yourselves against giving into fear and then resist publicly against the policies of tyranny which are coming again. Because it's pretty obvious what's gonna happen right now. The World Health Organization, which is essentially funded by the sociopath Gates, is gaining uh, more and more power over sovereign nations. Gates mess messaged 
messaged, I think five or six months ago, that smallpox is a big threat. And then uh, supposedly was eradicated in 1980. And it was only found in two labs in uh, America and in Russia, in DSL level four labs, um, the highest maximum security labs. And yet five days after the sociopath criminal Gates uh, said his prophetic words, a few vials of smallpox were found in an unsecure refrigerator in a uh, Merck laboratory in Philadelphia. And so it, it's not surprising to me now that we're seeing monkeypox. Uh, I anticipate uh, um, global panic about it. This will be the next media or narrative that uh, will continue the fear campaign to and lockdown campaign and mass campaign to uh, create anxiety, isolate you from people you love, and dehumanize you with with uh, these uh, face diapers. And so this is their playbook, and they're going to keep on uh, sending wave after wave of their evil agenda until we make internal resolutions to kick the evil out from within us. We should, in my opinion, uh, denounce the worship of false gods, the god of technology, the god of science, the god of uh, corrupt governments, money, power, fame, and reconcile our hearts with our creator who's making us anew every instant in time. Uh, basically, the, the world has now chosen sides. Uh, those that will worship the machinations of man and those that will uh, bow down to the creator. And so let the calling begin. Um, you know, the world needs a cleaning. And when the process is done, the world will be filled with the knowledge of God, just like the waters cover the seas. And uh, the sociopaths have a big thing coming for them. They think they're gods. They think that they're ruling the world. We'll see. Um, so let the games begin. And I have no problem falling in battle for the, because this is a hill that we need to die on because otherwise our progeny will have nowhere to breathe free. Okay, so many of the viewers know this doctor, and when I speak uh, ill of doctors, I don't speak ill of all doctors. Most, but there are some great men of God that have devoted themselves to healing the people. This man, uh, was practicing medicine in New York City at the uh, outbreak of the first um, COVID-19 crisis. This, of course, started on the West Coast, but then, you know, Manhattan got slammed, and you can tell he's a, 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 a very Orthodox Jewish person, and those communities of faith did not stay away from their synagogues. In fact, Governor Cuomo fought, and Mayor de Blasio fought, this Orthodox Jewish community tooth and nail, and basically they just told them to fuck off. 
because they don't live in the world of material or the world of the state. These people are dedicated to God. So they would get together, thousands of them, right in the middle of COVID, and thousands of them got sick. And uh, Zelenko uh, was in um, Manhattan, right, right, or Brooklyn, right in the center of this. And uh, he was the person who actually did the research and started to come up with alternative treatments, multi-drug treatments, that led to a multi-drug vitamin approach, nutraceutical and drug approach to treating COVID-19, which was distinct from what the mainstream narrative was, which was, you know, respirators and remdesivir, and, you know, was a very uh, ineffective treatment, and people were dying in the hospitals in droves, and he kept thousands and thousands and thousands of people out of the hospital, kept them safe. When I first saw him, I saw him online because another great doctor that I knew who was a close friend of mine sent me a video of him appearing before the rabbinical court by Zoom, the rabbinical court in Israel, which that court has a tradition back to Moses, and he was begging them to stop the government from Israel from injecting all of the Israeli citizens. Israel is the most vaccinated population in the world. And he said, this Dr. Zelenko told the court this was going to be the greatest genocide greater than the Holocaust. This guy, and then he went on, Trump, when Trump got, President Trump got um, COVID, they brought in Dr. Zelenko as part of the treatment team. And then he went on the circuit and he was going to all of the religious uh, revivals. And I'm talking about Christian revivals. He completely embraced Christianity. There was no gap between him and his Christian brothers, and the Christian brothers embraced him because that's what happens when there's a disaster. Sometimes communities form to deal with the disaster. So there's a huge traditional gap between the evangelical Christian movement or the conservative Christian movement or even the 501c3 Christian movement and the religious Jewish community, and he brought that gap and closed it, just like might happen on that Syrian-Turkish border. Those people might come together to rebuild after that horrible earthquake. It could be a healing as it says, all things function for good. And this man was such an inspiration, and he was all over the media. And what we didn't know is the entire time he was dying of cancer. The entire time. He left it all on the field. And is in, fa- and in fact, that bit that we just played, he died that evening. That was his last recorded message to humanity. Uh, could he be remembered 500 years from now? He could be. He's a patriot. He was fighting for America and fighting for humanity. And um, his actions were so inspiring. I had a friend, and I have to be so careful about how I talk about these things because I live in a state that has um, complete leftist control of every you know lever of government. And, uh, for example, our previous uh, candidate for uh, governor here, Dr. Jensen, who is a physician, the state of Minnesota is moving to revoke his uh, medical license. So different states have different ways of dealing, dealing with these things. And uh, I, had a, I had a doctor, and uh, he was prescribing for me, and he got COVID. And uh, 
This is in the, in the realm of me sharing something traumatic, which is good for me, and it's a story of sacred honor. Because the criticism is, people die. Well, damn right, we're all going to die. It's how we die. On our feet or on our knees. And this doctor was a very, very close friend of mine. And he got COVID, and we usually talk a couple times a week. I hadn't heard from him. I called him, and he said, I've got COVID, and I'm really sick. He got really sick. I mean, that Delta strain was, was, was almost a man-eater. If you got a good dose of that Delta, you're in big trouble. And I had many friends. I lost some friends. This was the most important person who I lost. And he did die. And I spent a lot of time with him as he was dying. And, you know, he was my doctor. And he was, it was very obvious to me that, you know, you got to have a doctor for a backup. I'm, this is my thinking. Everyone has their own well-being strategy. I don't want to go to the doctor, but I want to know if I need to go to the doctor, I got someone I can trust. And I'd worked with this man for many decades. He used to say to me, you never come to see me. That's correct. But I knew I could go if I needed him. And he was down. He was, he was, on, the, he was on the bench, on his back. So I went around interviewing doctors trying to find someone I could trust. And, I, you know, I wanted to get a prescription uh, that I wanted filled, and I couldn't, nobody would fill it for me. And uh, this friend of mine passed away. And I actually was quite good friends also with his sons. He has sons, and one of his sons called me up, and we were talking, and uh, he said to me, you know, just as Dad was being intubated, in other words, as they were putting him on a respirator just previous to his death, the last thing he was doing was calling in prescriptions for his patients. As He, would. he knew he was going to die. I want you to think about this scene. This is, a, this is sacred honor. And if I talk about it long enough, I'll start crying because it's such a beautiful example of courage and honor. So the man knows he's going to die. He's going on a respirator, and he said, wait, wait, wait. He can barely talk, and he's calling in prescriptions. So I couldn't get my prescription. And uh, the young man, the son, told me the story. And then about two hours later, I get a phone call from the pharmacy, and they say, and by this time, of course, my friend had passed away. And they call me, and they say, oh, your prescription's been refilled. And my brain locked up because I realized what my friend was doing was calling in my prescription before he died. And that's sacred honor. That means when you die, you can die well. So all those people that want to criticize the concept of well-being because we struggle with suffering and disease and death, fuck off. You don't know anything about the relationship of man and the Creator. Your life is material. You seek to minimize suffering to zero as the selling point for your faithlessness. This man was a, a, a Catholic, a Christian, a believer, and his last act before being intubated was to take care of a friend. That's sacred honor. And that kind of integrity is what we need to return to our governance. If you're in government, in any position from dog catcher, you know, I don't even know if they have, I mean, that's a saying, whatever the lowest rung of government is, 
to the President of the United States and everyone in between. If you took your responsibility to the people as seriously as my friend took his responsibility to me as my physician, our problems would be solved very, very quickly. It is not a failure of our Constitution. It is not a failure of our institution. It is a failure of men who have been raised in a Darwinist, in Malthusian school system that does not care about humanity, that believes in the survival of the fittest, and therefore, without God, they're capable of anything. So that's what we're working on, forming a community of people that care about humanity, strengthening human well-being so that we can overcome these evils. And if you like this, please subscribe. Please spread the word. Please visit Royce White's Call Me Crazy. And I look forward to seeing you soon again. Have a well day. Thank you very much.